Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 67 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Our Bible question of the day is, is coronavirus a sign of the end times? If not, what is? We're also going to talk about the most important teaching of Jesus about the last days, plus a much scarier historical plague than coronavirus that probably most of you have never heard of. So, hello everybody and welcome into another episode of the Bible Reading Podcast with a slightly clickbaity title. Is coronavirus a sign of the end of the world? Stay tuned for the exciting answer. Today's Bible passages are Exodus 18, in which Moses learned some excellent practical wisdom from his father-in-law Jethro. And no, for those of you that are old like me, I don't mean the guy on Beverly Hillbillies, though I will throw in a nugget of television trivia for absolutely no charge if you order now. Jethro, that is, actor Max Baer Jr., is, believe it or not, still alive, despite the fact that the show he starred on, Beverly Hillbillies, as an adult, premiered in 1962, almost 60 years ago. Now, what other Bible reading podcast gives you nuggets of useless information quite like that? We're also going to be reading Job chapter 36, 2 Corinthians 6, and Luke 21, which will serve as our focus passage for the day. Luke 21 is somewhat paralleled in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 in the New Testament, and all three of those passages are known as the Olivet Discourse. This is when Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, and not the Sermon on the Mount, but a later message when he talks about eschatology, or the last days the end of time, the second coming, uh, all of that kind of thing. While that Olivet Discourse is most fully recorded in Matthew 24, and we actually covered some of these same topics uh, back then, we're going to go in a slightly different direction today, because Luke gives us uh, some deep insight into Jesus' teaching on the last days in his return, including this line that is not in Matthew 24 or Mark uh, 13, and where he says, he told them, nation will be raised up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So far, familiar. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. Now, the key word there, a word that's on a lot of people's minds these days, in case you missed it, is the word plagues. As I record this podcast today on March 7th, 2020 at one thirty-nine a.m. in the morning with my son and his buddies uh, outside the door having a spend the night party for the, his 16th birthday. Happy birthday, John Cayman. But as I record this podcast, the whole world is in the midst of the coronavirus panic and probably for good reason. When I used to be on a podcast back in the day called The Gospel Friends, we would rate news of the world in a little game we called BDLD, Big Deal, Little Deal, or No Deal. My take, as somebody who is not a medical doctor, nor who knows anything at all about COVID's number 1 through 18, is that the coronavirus will be a big deal. Not a mammoth deal, not a huge deal, but a pretty big deal. And here's our 99-cent question. Does the coronavirus portend the end of the world in the return of Jesus? And the answer? Maybe. But probably not. In the same way, 
that the plague of Justinian, which happened in 541-542 and claimed the lives of somewhere around 25 to 50 million people, or the Black Death of 1333 through 1353 and claimed the lives of somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 to 200 million people, or the Spanish flu, which killed 100 million in that neighborhood, the Asian flu of 1957 to 1958, which killed 2 million, or the Russian flu of 1889 to 1890, which killed a million, or the worst plague that really nobody has ever heard of, the Cocolitzli epidemic in Mexico of 1545 to 1548, which killed 5 to 15 million people just in that area alone. In the same way that those plagues, some of them well over a thousand years ago, were not telling us that Jesus was about to return. I think the same thing of the coronavirus pandemic. It's not telling us that Jesus is about to return, at least not in and of itself. I don't think that's what it's showing us. However, at the same time, that and other signs that Jesus spoke of should at least cause Christians to raise an eyebrow, at least quarter of the way up or maybe even halfway. Sickness, plagues, pandemics are a sign that Jesus says will point to his return. But the general picture we get when we don't just focus on one tiny little thing he said about what to look for at his return, but we look at the big picture, the general picture we get is not one of these types of issues in isolation, but all of them happening together in concert, along with signs in the heavens and many other things. The picture is one of incredible upheaval. And even then, according to Matthew 22, Four, that's just the beginning of the preparation for the return of Jesus. So Matthew 24, uh, 6, 7, and 8 says, You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. It's important. See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of labor pains. So the thing about predicting the exact time of the return of Jesus is that it's not really possible to do from Scripture, as we've discussed a little bit before. The Bible does not have encoded in it the time of Jesus' return. How do I know this? Well, because Jesus himself said that he did not know when he was on earth when his second return would be. He said only the Father knew. So I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the when of the last days. I love talking about the last days. I think it's one of the most fascinating teachings of Jesus, and it's the great hope we have as Christians. He's going to return. I love talking about the last days, but there's not a lot of fruit to be gained in talking about the when of the last days. I'd rather focus on what Jesus focused on in regards to the last days or his second coming or the end of history or whatever you want to call it. And what he focused on was being awake and ready. And so at the beginning, I told you I wanted to talk about a scary uh, pandemic or epidemic from history. And uh, this is a really scary one. So if you're a hypochondriac, go ahead and skip skip a couple of minutes ahead so you don't get too freaked out about this one. The good news is 
I think with modern medicine, we're not going to see this one much anymore. But again, not a doctor, I'm just guessing. So in 1918, I'm sure you've heard by now that the world was hit with a devastating epidemic, the Spanish flu epidemic. Uh, Somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 100 million people were killed by that. And the bad thing about it was that particular flu really, really hit healthy young adults the hardest. Ultimately, it killed way more people than were killed in World War One, uh, which is pretty incredible. Really, it killed more people than were killed in World War One and World War Two. Mass graves had to be built. It was unimaginably devastating. It was actually so bad that the U.S. government kept many, many secrets about the spread of the illness and how many people died. According to the Stuff You Missed in History Class podcast, Telegraph operators were given code books that they could not understand, and they were used to transmit disease information to Washington so that the people in Washington kind of knew what was going on, but the rank-and-file people did not know what was going on. So you've probably heard of the Spanish flu, and it's pretty scary. And and don't I, I don't think we're facing the same thing with the coronavirus. I don't think it's going to hit that hard, guessing, of course. However, in the midst of that epidemic, a much scarier epidemic took hold for over 10 years. And this is the one I don't think many people have heard of because it didn't kill as many people, but it did kill a lot of people. And it's terrifying. And even today, 100 years later, it is not very well understood. And that disease I'm talking about has been dubbed encephalitis lethargica. This disease attacks the brain and it leaves its victims in a statue-like condition, speechless and motionless. Between 1915 and 1926, an epidemic of encephalitis lethargica spread all around the world. It was characterized by high fever, sore throat, headache, lethargy, double vision, delayed physical, mental response, sleep inversion, and catatonia. And if you're thinking right now, oh my gosh, that sounds like what I have. <laughs> don't, don't do that. You don't have it. Uh, it, it's, it's, it still happens today, but it's exceedingly rare. In severe cases, a 100 years ago, patients would enter a coma-like state, and the disease could last for years. During that outbreak, more than a million people died, and more than that were left sort of frozen inside their bodies in institutions. At the time, no one knew what caused it or how to treat it. Even today, the cause isn't really known well for sure. But it's probably related to uh, some of the bacteria that cause strep throat. And again, not a doctor, but it's probably treatable and preventable by today's antibiotics. And I say that because there hasn't been another outbreak of that kind for, you know, almost a 100 years. So what's even more terrifying than that and even more common than that? And that is something I would like to dub spiritual encephalitis lethargica. It's much more common. It's much more dangerous. And it's all about when we Christians are, spiritually speaking, figuratively speaking, asleep at the wheel. Isaiah 59 verse 9 describes the condition of spiritual encephalitis lethargica this way. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. 
Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. Now, Isaiah is not talking about an illness that hit the people of Israel. He's talking about a spiritual condition in which they were stumbling around, not knowing where to go in deep spiritual darkness and like the dead. The church at Sardis addressed in Revelation 3 with a letter from Jesus himself also suffered from the condition of spiritual encephalitis lethargica. Let me pause here just for a moment, just so people will know. I'm speaking metaphorically, not literally. The Bible doesn't identify a condition called encephalitis lethargica that's spiritual. But what I'm speaking of is what the Bible does identify as a huge problem, and that is being spiritually asleep. For instance, listen to Jesus' letter to the church at Sardis. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, he says to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, says Jesus, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So waking up for us is extremely important. Jesus in love in this letter stings the church at Sardis in a way that makes a lot of sense to them. Sardis had been a boom city many years before, but by the time of Jesus' letter, the city was not doing really so well. Think of maybe modern Detroit in the United States of America. The church was like that even more. It had a good reputation back in the day, impressive works. It was probably big and successful, but it was dying. It was spiritually dying. As one of my favorite preachers, a British man named Dick Lucas says, these letters of Jesus are like iodine put on a cut. Now he's saying iodine to us Americans, but I believe he pronounces it like iodine uh, with an E, and I like his pronunciation better. And the, his point is, the leader, the letters of Jesus to the churches in Revelation one through three, are not meant to harm, they're meant to heal. But the truth will sting a little bit, like iodine stings. There's no indication in this letter of Jesus to the church at Sardis that it had deviated from sound biblical teaching. Based on the other churches and Jesus' challenge to them, I suspect that Sardis had solid biblical theology. It was just asleep. We can do the same thing too. We can have good theology, but we can be spiritually asleep. Not only that, but Sardis was known for its works and good deeds. It was not a dead-looking church. It probably had good, solid teaching because Jesus didn't mention anything problem with its teaching. It probably had good, solid theology. It had lots of good works to point to. And yet, despite the fact that the teaching was solid, the works were happening, Jesus looks at Sardis and says, You are dead. Wake up! Now, right now in the country of Turkey, there's approximately one Bible-believing Christian for every 21,000 citizens. That's an astonishing number. Only one Bible-believing Christian in Turkey for every 21,000. 
thousand people. This was the cradle of Christianity. All seven of Jesus's letters, including this one to the church at Sardis, were written to churches in modern-day Turkey, Anatolia. The locus of Christianity has moved dozens of times over the years. In the early church, the, the focus, the locus, the center of Christianity was in the Asia Minor area, in the Turkey area. For the last couple of hundred years, maybe that has been in America. I honestly believe it's shifting. I think it's shifting to Africa. It's shifting to China. Um, I don't know that it's going to be in America anymore. The Holy Spirit does not appear to breathe very frequently on institutionalized believers or churches. Instead, the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth looking for those whose hearts are fully His that He might strengthen them, says Second Chronicles 16.9. And if you're a parent like I am... That means that we should not be concerned about introducing our children to our religion or our traditions. Look, I want us to go to church. I believe in the church. I believe in the the American church. I pastor a Baptist church in California. I believe in the church, but I don't want my kids to be followers of churchianity. I don't want them to adapt my traditions and my religion. I want them to know my God and his son. I want them to know and embrace the gospel. I don't want them to walk in our ways or my generation's ways of walking out our religion. I want them to know Jesus. I want him them to walk in his teachings and the teachings of the Bible. Some of the methods change. Some of the forms change. But the truth of God's word doesn't. Now, the main thrust of the letter of Jesus to the church of Sardis was wake up. It's it's presented as both a command and a threat. And kind of reading through the word of God this week in terms of that command to wake up, I was astounded, and I bet you will be too, at how often that command is repeated in scripture, particularly by Jesus to his people and to his church. Now, I'm not going to read all of the passages, but I want to read a few of them, and then we're going to dive into Exodus. Matthew twenty four forty two. Jesus says, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let the house be broken into. Therefore you and I also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Same thing, Mark thirteen thirty three. Be on your guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And I say, And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I don't know if you're counting, but in that one little passage, Jesus says to us, be awake, stay awake four times in just a few verses. Luke 21, the same thing. Verse 36, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have a strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. First Thessalonians 5, 5, Paul says, for you are all children of the light. Children of the day, we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. First Corinthians fifteen thirty four. 
Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Romans thirteen eleven. The hour has come. It, pause. All of these passages are said to Christians. We need to remember that. Paul is writing to Christians. Jesus was teaching his disciples. Romans is to Christians. Romans 13, 11, The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Finally, Revelation sixteen fifteen, Behold, says Jesus, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Brothers and sisters, I feel like I've done a little bit of preaching today, but I hope you realize I'm preaching to myself as much or more as I'm preaching to you. Sometimes it's hard to get the preacher out of the preacher. In the face of a looming and scary pandemic, let us, you and I, look to Jesus, the beautiful author and finisher of our salvation, fearing only God and trusting only Jesus to save us. Now, let us also be wise and shrewd and prudent. And most especially, considering all of the passages we've read today, let us be awake and ready whenever the Master chooses to return. And without further ado, let's get into Exodus chapter 18, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything that God had done for Moses and for God's people, Israel, when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken in Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, Hmm. along with her two sons, one of whom was named Gershom, because Moses said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land, and the other Eleazar, because he said, the God of my father was my helper and rescued me from Pharaoh's sword. Moses' father-in-law Jethro, along with Moses' wife and sons, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and kissed him. They asked each other how they had been and went into the tent. Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that confronted them on the way and how the Lord rescued them. Jethro rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. Blessed be the Lord, Jethro exclaimed, who rescued you from the power of Egypt and from the power of Pharaoh. He has rescued the people from under the power of Egypt. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods because he did wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in God's presence. The next day Moses sat down to judge the people, and they stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw everything he was doing for them, he asked, "'What is this thing you're doing for the people?' Why are you alone sitting as judge, while all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses replied to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. Whenever they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I make a decision between one man and another. I teach them God's statutes and laws. What you are doing is not good, 
Moses' father-in-law said to him, You will certainly wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, because the task is too heavy for you. You can't do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you some advice, and God be with you. You be the one to represent the people before God and bring their cases to him. Instruct them about the statutes and laws and teach them the way to live and what they must do. But you should select from all the people able men, God-fearing, trustworthy, and hating dishonest prophet. Place them over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They should judge the people at all times. Then they can bring you every major case, but judge every minor case themselves. In this way you will lighten your load, and they will bear it with you. If you do this, and God so directs you, you will be able to endure, and also all these people will be able to go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. So Moses chose able men from all Israel and made them leaders over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They judged the people at all times. They would bring the hard cases to Moses, but they would judge every minor case themselves. Moses let his father-in-law go, and he journeyed to his own land. Job chapter 36 verse 1 Then Elihu continued, saying, Be patient with me a little longer, and I will inform you, for there is still more to be said on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from a distant place and ascribe justice to my Maker. Indeed, my words are not false. One who has complete knowledge is with you. Yes, God is mighty, but he despises no one. He understands all things. He does not keep the wicked alive, but he gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his gaze from the righteous, but he seats them forever with enthroned kings, and they are exalted. If people are bound with chains and trapped by the cords of affliction, God tells them what they have done and how arrogantly they've transgressed. He opens their ears to correction and tells them to repent from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they will end their days in prosperity and their years in happiness. But if they do not listen, they will cross the river of death and die without knowledge. Those who have a godless heart harbor anger. Even when God binds them, they do not cry for help. They die in their youth. Their life ends among male cult prostitutes. God rescues the afflicted by their affliction. He instructs them by their torment. Indeed, he lured you from the jaws of distress and to a spacious and unconfined place. Your table was spread with choice food, yet now you are obsessed with the judgment due the wicked. Judgment and justice have seized you. Be careful that no one lures you with riches. Do not let a large ransom lead you astray. Can your wealth or all your physical exertion keep you from distress? Do not long for the night when nations will disappear from their places. Be careful that you do not turn to iniquity, for that is why you have been tested by affliction. Look, God shows himself exalted by his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has appointed his way for him? And who has declared you have done wrong? Remember that you should praise his work, which people have sung about. All mankind has seen it. People have looked from a distance. Yes, God is exalted beyond our knowledge. The number of his years cannot be counted, for he makes water drops evaporate. They distill the rain into its mist, which the clouds pour out and shower abundantly on mankind. 
Can anyone understand how the clouds spread out or how the thunder roars from God's pavilion? See how he spreads his lightning around him and covers the depths of the sea. For he judges the nations with these. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with lightning and commands it to hit its mark. The thunder declares his presence, the cattle also the approaching storm. Luke chapter 21 verse 1. He looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in all she had to live on. As some were talking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he said, These things that you see, the days will come when not one will be left on another that will not be thrown down. Teacher, they asked him, when will all these things happen and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Then he said, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, it is necessary that these things take place first, but the end won't come right away. Then he told them, Nation will be rised up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things... They will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time, for I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but not a hair of your head will be lost. By your endurance, gain your lives. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains, those inside the city must leave it, and those who are in the country must not enter it. Because these are days of vengeance to fulfill all the things that are written. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will be killed by the sword and be led captive into the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Then there will be signs in the moon and stars, and there will be anguish on the earth among nations bewildered by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and expectation of the things that are coming on the world, because the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things began to take place, stand up and lift up your hands, because your redemption is near. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put out leaves, you can see for yourselves and recognize that summer is already near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, 
but my words will never pass away. Be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing drunkenness and worries of life, or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap, for it will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. During the day he was teaching in the temple, but in the evening he would go out and spend the night on what is called the Mount of Olives. Then all the people would come out early in the morning to hear him in the temple. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him, we also appeal to you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At an acceptable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. We are not giving anyone an occasion for offense so that the ministry will not be blamed. Instead, as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything, by great endurance, by afflictions, by hardships, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, through weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, through slander and good report, regarded as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet recognized, as dying, yet see, we live, as being disciplined, yet not killed, as grieving, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet enriching many, as having nothing but possessing everything. We've spoken openly to you, Corinthians. Our heart has been opened wide. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. I speak as to my children, as a proper response, open your heart to us. Don't become partners with those who do not believe, for what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Amen. What an incredible privilege it is for us listening to this. Whether we've had good human fathers and mothers or not, whether they are still with us or not, what a privilege to be able to be called sons and daughters of the Most High, the Lord Almighty. Rejoice in that, my friends. Good day to you and Godspeed.